Derek, welcome to Millennial Manhood. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on the show. It's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. So you are a very interesting individual. I'm, I've been very excited about this conversation for a while. Uh, quite frankly, so you've written a book called Chasing the Rabbit, A Dad's Life Raising a Son on the Spectrum. And it might be the first book I've ever seen on Amazon with more than two reviews that had all five stars. So yeah. uh, kudos to you. That's uh, quite the feat. But yeah. give, the folks, give the folks listening a, um, a Derek 10,000 foot view. Sure. Uh, thanks for listening, folks. I appreciate it. My book is about my experiences raising my son, who's now 27, with autism. He was diagnosed at age eight, but at age two, my wife realized that there was something not quite right with him. Uh, we then went through a series of diagnoses and then finally got the diagnosis of, of what they now call high-functioning autism at eight. Uh, and that only just began the crazy roller coaster ride that we went on over the next two decades. Um, and uh, Dylan is now 27. He lives in Los Angeles on his own and uh, just completed a book called Bad Choices Make Good Stories. My Life with Autism, which is amazing. And we are going around the country sharing our story with anybody that'll listen. So we're heading to Savannah, Georgia tomorrow, actually. Awesome. Wow. That's that's powerful. So he's he's 27, he's living on his own, and he wrote his own book. What prompted him writing his book? Well, throughout my book, or what or our book, I should say, I have what a we have what are called Dylan's takes. So Throughout the book, I asked Dylan to, after I completed the book, I asked him to comment on anything he felt that needed his perspective. So throughout the book, there are these little paragraphs here or there at the end of the chapter called Dylan's Takes. And the more people read those, the more we went around the country speaking and Dylan has he's incredibly introspective. He has an amazing ability to understand how his brain works and explain and then explain it to other people. He just felt like he had so much more to say than was in the Dylan's takes. Um, he's had a pretty crazy life. Um, and from that, he started writing Bad Choices Make Good Stories and ended up with uh, really one heck of a book. Wow. So l- let's let's take a step back. So you are uh, an executive at a, at a third generation um, box manufacturer in, in Maine. Correct. So you're, you're a third generation running the company. So you're, you're an executive. You're running a co- company. Your wife, Amy, is actually, if I believe, a, a retired state senator, correct? Correct. So two, you know, high-functioning, power couple type of individuals, and then your world is rocked with um, initially the thought of, hey, something's off here, and then the diagnosis. Talk to us a little bit about that. Talk to us about particularly being a man at that point in your life and seeing your son going through something, and then how that also impacted your relationship between yourself and your wife and yourself and your son. So I was come, I came home from school, from school, I came home from work one day and my wife sat me down. Dylan was about two years old and she said, something's not quite right with Dylan. I said, what do you mean? She said, 
I don't know, but something's not right. So I said, well, what would make you say that? And she said, well, when the other boys are over at the house, you know, playing and play dates and so forth, they're communicating in a way that two-year-olds communicate and Dylan doesn't. It's like he doesn't even seem to care or notice that they're in the room and it just doesn't seem right. So my immediate response was, oh, he's fine. You're overreacting. Don't worry about it. He'll be fine. Uh, Which is a pretty common dad response, I have to say, after traveling around the country now for three and a half years, speaking to literally thousands and thousands of people about this. I can't tell you how many fathers have come up and said that they had the same reaction. They just didn't want to, they didn't want to admit it. It was, it's a really difficult thing, especially at the time he was, you know, he was my only child, uh, ended up being my only son. So to accept that there's something that, that he's not going to be captain of the football team. He's not going to be center fielder for the baseball team. He's not going to probably join the family business, you know, Coming to reality over the course of a number of years with all of those things as a man is very difficult. And it's partly why I felt my story needed to be written. If you look, if you go down the bookshelves in the autism section of a bookstore, if such a thing, if bookstores still existed, um, you would find that all the books are written by either moms or professionals. There was nothing written from the dad's perspective. And I just felt that there was an unheard voice out there. So I started writing and uh, basically just laid my soul out, to be honest with you, because I didn't think anybody was ever going to read it. I figured, I'll write this book. I'll tell Dylan about it. He's going to say, there's no way you're telling everybody all that stuff. And that would be the end of it. It would sit on my computer and... At least I got it out of my system. But he was shockingly supportive and has been just unbelievably candid with audiences. Of course, he doesn't really have much of a filter and he loves being the center of attention. So there's nothing he likes better than talking about himself. So he has been uh, just incredible. And we go and we, we speak to these conferences and he is just an absolute rock star. Uh, people just can't get enough of him. So that that's what led to his book. But what I tell people in the book is that I had to mourn. I had to mourn the, the son that I thought I was going to have so I could love the one that God gave me. And that was not an overnight process. It, it took a while. And it took, it, it took writing the book really as well to, to get to the point where I could really accept Dylan for who Dylan was. I was mad at him for a lot of years just for being Dylan. Not for anything necessarily that he did in particular, but just for the fact that my family life with my wife and three daughters was not what I thought it was going to be. And I resented him. Go go ahead. I resented him for it. And that sucked. That what you just said, the quote, I had to mourn the son that I thought I was going to have so I can love the son that I ha- that God gave me is maybe one of the most powerful things I've ever heard somebody say on this podcast. That truly struck me just now. Well, you know, you. It's, it, it's 
it wasn't an easy it wasn't an easy process to go through as morning and you know i've heard people oh morning you know that's seems a little bit over dramatic well you know mourning is a loss you can mourn the loss of a job you can mourn obviously the loss of a person and you can learn, you can mourn the loss of an idea and you know when i was a kid i and i was a young man and i was a young husband and i was a father to be i had an idea that my son was going to play ball with me and you know we'd go out and, and you know we we i'd coach his babe ruth baseball team and i'd watch him grow into a young man who went to college and maybe join the family business and I had to accept that all of those dreams were not going to happen. All of those ideas were essentially dead. And I had to mourn it. Yeah, we can be our own worst enemy by the lives that we create in our own heads. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So you and mentioned those are pretty common, you know, I don't think there was anything really unusual about a dad having those kinds of dreams for his son. No, I think they're totally normal and, and completely expected. I, I think I want to go back to something you just said sure. a little bit earlier, though, when you said if you go down the aisle of a bookstore and you look at the books regarding autism, none of them are from a dad's perspective. How would you describe the dad's perspective being different? Obviously, the mourning phase of the idea of manhood, masculinity, et cetera, uh, or at least the idea of that. But how was that perspective different than what you were finding at the time being shared? Well, I'll give you a, I'll give you a couple of quick examples from the book. Go for it. Um, and the book the book is called Chasing the Rabbit: A Dad's Life Raising a Son on the Spectrum. You can get it at chasingtherabbit.org. The so I'll give you a light example and a and a heavy example. All right, a little lighter example and a little heavier example. So a, a little somewhat lighter example that you won't read in a mom's book. And actually my editor wanted me to take it out and I insisted that it stay in is that Dylan cramped my sex life. Hmm. You know, there were a lot of nights where, um, you know, we spent the entire evening battling with Dylan and I knew at the end of the night, my wife was exhausted mentally and physically. Um, and uh, that was going to be uh, watch, you know, watch this episode of Cheers and fall asleep. And, uh, you know, um, I talked about in the book that, you know, we used to go on, on when we would get a date night, which wasn't that common for somebody with four children. But when we would get a date night, we had a rule that there was no talking about Dylan allowed. Because if we talked about Dylan all the emotions of Dylan would come along with it. And Dylan may as well be on the date with us at that point. And as most, you know, most men know that when they get date night, it's, you know, kind of dinner and a movie and hopefully something after. And if we spent the whole evening talking about Dylan, I knew that evening was not going to end the way I was hoping. Um, so my editor wanted me to take that out of the book. He felt that was not appropriate. And I said, you know what? To a dad reading this, it's very appropriate because that used to piss me off, frankly. You know, I mean, I love my wife. She's quite beautiful. 
And I wanted to spend some time with her in the evenings. And a lot of times that didn't happen because of Dylan. Um, and that was frustrating. So, um, so that's a, a little bit of a, of a lighter, a lighter part of it. Um, a little bit of a heavier part uh, where I think the dad's perspective was different is and I'm not proud of this, but this is a story that I that I talk about in my presentation and, and in the book, Chasing the Rabbit. So Dylan got to the point where he was in middle school and he, my wife is not a huge person, so she's petite. And so I would, I would get a call at work and all I would hear is screaming, just screaming on the other end from Dylan and my, and my wife. And sometimes she would be able to say, come home. Sometimes that's, I would just hear the screaming and then Dylan would grab the phone and hang up. And there was nothing that she could do at that point because he's 15 years old. He's bigger than she is. He, you know, go to your room doesn't work anymore. Um, so I would come home and I would try to fix the situation. I would try to solve the problem because if anybody's read the book, men are from Mars, women are from Venus, you know, that's what chapter one talks about, talks about how men try to solve problems. That's what we do. That's in a, just our instinctual thing is to solve problems. So this, you know, they give this story about how this woman had this coworker at work and she comes home and she's, you know, complaining to her husband about this coworker and the husband, instead of just listening, tells her what she should do about it. And the woman gets mad and he says, well, you know, what are you getting mad at? And, and they get in this whole thing. She wasn't looking for him to solve the problem. She just wanted him to hear the problem and empathize. Well, I would come home and I would try to solve the problem. And in the course of that, somewhere along the line, I would cross a line. Somewhere along that, that confrontation, I would cross a line. I didn't know where that line was. Amy didn't know where that line was. We didn't even know there was a line, but there was definitely a line. And I always knew when I crossed it because when I crossed that line, my wife went from being on my side to being right in the middle saying, you know, putting her hands up and saying, you've gone far enough. And now it's me on one side, Dylan on the other and Amy in the middle which I then got ticked off at. And I said, you know, why are you mad at me? I'm just trying to fix this. I'm trying to get things under control because men try to control situations. That's what we do. Mm -hmm. And, but I went too far, you know, ultimately the mama bear clause came out and I either said something to him, to Dylan, or I did something physically. And I mean, I never beat the kid, but you know, it got aggressive sometimes because he's kicking holes in the wall and breaking glasses. And I mean, I had to get physical with him and keep him from, you know, destroying the home. And it became just too much for her. And the analogy that I used later, not at the time, I didn't come up with this until I was writing the book is that we had different battle strategies. So if you look at it from a military perspective, my, my battle strategy was of the theory that you need to protect the unit. 
that ultimately you need to protect the unit, the marriage, the, you know, we've been, we've been together since we're 15 years old. I, you know, we've been married for 30 years now. I was not going to let that marriage fall apart because of Dylan. And I wasn't going to let it ruin my family. I have three daughters. I wasn't going to let it ruin my family. So much like the story of the guy that's willing to fall on the grenade to protect his unit, that's kind of the way I looked at it, except embarrassingly and selfishly, I was not willing to fall on the grenade. I was willing to let Dylan fall on the grenade. I was willing to sacrifice Dylan to protect my family. Now, my wife, on the other hand, she had a very different battle strategy. Her battle strategy was more of the theory that you leave no man behind. So if that ship was going to the bottom of the ocean, she was going to hang on to that kid until it hit absolute rock bottom. And if you think about it, those are almost diametrically opposed battle strategies. And they caused a lot of conflict between us. And I can't even tell you how many times in the last three and a half years and over a hundred presentations around the country, I've had a father or a mother come up to me and say, my husband and I have those same battle strategies, but we didn't realize it. And I said, well, I didn't realize it either until I wrote the book and I had to kind of put my, get my arms around this whole thing. And so that is something that I don't think you'd read in a mom's book. Yeah, it's it's an interesting approach to the the thought process behind raising a child with with special needs and the and the pressure that it puts on a family unit as you described it. You know, I think one thing that's really interesting is you said that Dylan is very introspective, but you're very introspective. I know you have to write the book and put all your feelings and emotions and and thoughts on the paper, but admitting what you've just admitted to yourself, which is the hardest part, and then sharing it with others, that's a challenge because the hardest thing people, the thing people never want to do is admit their own faults. And you said you were willing to protect the unit, but you weren't willing to fall on that grenade. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I, we, um, so since bad choices make good stories came out, I've, 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 I've realized something that I didn't realize before. And I just, honestly, I just took as a compliment prior to that to some extent. So a lot of people have said to me over the last, my book, if you read Chasing the Rabbit, it's very raw. Like I don't hold anything back. I just absolutely lay it out there in what I was going through, what I felt. And sometimes it's kind of ugly. And I did that because I didn't think anybody was ever going to read this book. So it was, you know, people say how brave I was to share that. And I think about it now that bad choices make good stories come out, came out. And I realized something pretty significant is that I wasn't really that brave. I mean, maybe I was brave not editing it after the fact when I realized I was going to actually turn it into a book. And the fact that I share it with so many people on stage, but the actual writing of it was not terribly brave because I didn't think anybody was going to read it. So who cares what I wrote? I could have written anything. But Dylan's book, when Dylan wrote Bad Choices Make Good Stories, 
He knew people were going to read this book. He knew that hundreds, if not thousands of people that read Chasing the Rabbit were going to want to read Bad Choices Make Good Stories. So when Dylan's book came out and is completely open and raw about everything that he's been through and how he feels about life, that's brave because he did it knowing that people were going to read it. Hmm. That's interesting. Did you, I mean, did you feel as a father, and I don't know what your answer to this is, but going back to, to the morning part and going back to the bravery part and trying to tie it all together. Did you as a father at any point feel like you failed your son during all those years? Oh God. Countless times. Yeah. Tell me about that. Yep. Um, oh gosh. I mean, when he was having, when he was four and five and having meltdowns that we couldn't get him under control. I mean, it started, so the Dylan seemed perfectly fine up until he was a little over two. And then he started having, you know, meltdowns, which is like a temper tantrum on steroids. But when he was in, when he was an infant, we used to take him for car rides. We lived about two hours from both our parents, my parents and Amy's parents. And so when we would take him down to see them, he would scream the whole way, the whole way, just scream for two hours, hated being in his car seat. And that was probably the first time that I felt like a failure because I was like, how, why can we not keep, get this kid to settle down? Like, what are we doing wrong that this beautiful little baby of ours is so miserable for two straight hours? of just absolute lung curdling screams. So that was the first part, but that was pretty minor compared to later. Um, but later in life when Dylan was kicked out of multiple programs, kicked out of schools, when we had to, when Dylan was, uh, in sixth grade, and he had to be sent to a psychiatric unit for three weeks because he had such a breakdown. I sat in the parking lot and cried like I don't know if I've barely ever cried like that in my whole life, just like shoulder-bouncing kind of hysterical crying all by myself um, because I felt like such a failure. How could, how could I not be able to handle this son that I love so much? And that was really hard. Uh, when he was a sophomore in high school, we, he was talking about suicide a lot and we ended up sending him to a boarding school, um, because we felt like there needed to be more, more supervision. There needed to be something done about addressing all the issues that he had and we couldn't address them. And we probably stopped and cried five times on the ride home um, because we felt like such failures. Um, there were times when there were lots of times there were, there were, I mean, when he got arrested um, for the, I don't know how many time when he was, you know, when he was in jail and I'm looking at him and he's in an orange jumpsuit and his, 
hair's all disheveled and he's hadn't shaved in days and he got, you know, handcuffs on. And I'm thinking, what on earth is going on? Who is that kid? How did that sweet little boy that I brought home from the hospital get up there? Like, I don't, he was a hundred pounds overweight. He'd pretty much just given up on life. And I just thought, what on earth? You know, what did we do wrong? And I, and, and it wasn't hard to feel like a failure because we had multiple counselors tell us how awful we were as parents. And so they, we had one guy tell us that there's nothing wrong with Dylan at all, that he's, that we're just basically terrible parents and we need to crack the whip. Um, and we believe Hold on. who the hell are these counselors? I know that is, that is, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but that sounds like the worst counseling I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> well, it gets worse. Uh, the chapter actually in my book is called the worst parenting advice ever. Um, so he told us that we were just horrible parents who were letting Dylan walk all over us, that he doesn't have autism. That's just a bunch of BS. And the next time he has one of these meltdowns, I should grab him and physically force his face into the carpet until he settles down. Sounds like something from the 1600s that will work. Well, here's the thing. I did it. Wow. Because and what was the result? I had a professional telling me that that was what I should be doing. So, and he was pretty convincing that we were just terrible parents. Uh, uh, what do you, th- what would you, I'm sure the results are probably what you would guess. It, it elevated his meltdown, uh, about a hundred times. And, um, I ended up lifting him up onto the bed and just hugging him until he finally settled down because I felt like just the worst human being, much less parent of all time. And, uh, yeah, there were <laughs> there were a lot of yeah, if you read the book, if you read for anybody who reads Chasing the Rabbit, um I certainly don't glorify everything that you know, people will read the book and they'll tell me, Oh, well, you know, he's such a wonderful parent. I'm like, Well, you know, if you read the book, you'll realize that I made a lot of mistakes. I mean, I was taking Dylan to a crisis unit one day because he was having such a meltdown. He was just in, uh, totally, totally out of control. And uh, he, we had a baby at the time and he picked up the car seat and he hurled it at my head while I'm driving on a, off, on a ramp to get onto the interstate. And so he hits me in the back of the head with a car seat mm. and I lost it. I mean, I just lost it and I got him I pulled over and I took him out of the car and I yanked him out of the car. What I didn't realize is that we're on a big hill. And so when I yanked him out of the car, I mean, he was 12 years old and I was, what was I, 32. So I was obviously a lot stronger than he was. And so when I yanked him out of the car, I ended up basically tossing him down this hill where he roll down this to the bottom of this hill. And of course you can imagine how I felt when I turned around and saw him. I thought I was just throwing him on the grass. I didn't realize I was on a big hill. And so 
you know, I ran down the hill and tried to apologize, but of course he was now even madder and wouldn't get in the car. And it's quite a story. So anyway, yeah, yeah, I, I, there were a lot of times that I felt like a failure. Uh, I took him to boarding school. I went to take, he ended up getting kicked out of that first boarding school. Well, technically he didn't get kicked out. He was about to get kicked out. And then we went and pulled him before we had the humiliating, please don't have Dylan come here anymore discussion, which we'd had way too many times in our life. And so we yanked him from the boarding school and sent him to another boarding school, which was down in North Carolina. And, um, which was a very like hardcore, it was, I call it autism boot camp. And, uh, and when we got down there and, you know, brought him to the school and, um, you know, he was, you know, it just felt like, you know, what did, what could we have done differently? You know, I, mean, I can't tell you how many times we asked ourselves, what could we have done? And, you know, we, luckily we had parents that were very supportive and saying, you know, you're doing everything you can do. You're blah, 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 blah. But, you know, in the moment that, that doesn't, really that's what parents say you know yeah doesn't make you doesn't really make you feel any better well i want to segue everything the power and the raw emotion of the dark days um into the other side of the coin and and i want to use a personal example here you know i was i don't know maybe 15 or 16 years old i remember this very vividly and i'm sitting on the couch and my dad's sitting on the couch next to me and he just puts his arm on my shoulder and he looks at me and says it in Serbian and says, uh, roughly translated to, you are my pride. And um, I looked at him like he was crazy. And he said, one day you'll understand what I mean by that. And Do you have kids? I do not, not yet. Yeah. I just said that to one of my kids the other day. I st- and Well, and I wanted to, to segue that into – when you start describing Dylan the way he is at 27 today, living in Los Angeles, that's what it sounded like to me. So what, what happened with Dylan? What, what progress has he made? What um, changes have happened to where instead of, you know, you're yanking him down a hill (laughs) or shoving his face into a carpet, you're, you're sitting on that couch with him and looking at him saying, you're my bride. That would, that's that's a good question um, and hard to answer briefly because I have a 260-page book and Dylan has a 212-page book uh, <laughs> describing that whole process. But, um, you know, he matured. He learned a lot from the different experiences that he had, um, whether it was going to different programs and, and learning to live somewhat independently and then uh failing coming back failing again trying something else i mean the kid is unbelievably resilient he he just keeps bouncing back up um no matter how many times he gets knocked down he's 27 years old he's had almost 40 jobs um he's been fired from almost every one of them except for the ones he quit because he knew he was going to get fired and he just bounces up and, you know, as he gets older, it gets harder to bounce back up, but 
he still does it. He gets up another day and, 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 you know, fights on, but it took a long time. It took a long time to get to the point where, um, you know, where I, where I felt like Dylan was, where I was proud of Dylan, um, and proud of who he was and where he's come. I mean, he's, he's, he's done an amazing job, uh, figuring out how to get through life. And it's still, he still struggles. He, and he still feels like a failure every day. Uh, because you know, and social media makes that even worse because he sees his peers getting married and having children and, you know, buying houses and holding jobs. And, you know, he's still struggling to make ends meet and, you know, um, so he he still doesn't see himself as successful, which is too bad. But it was a long it was a long process um, to get to the point where I mean I always loved Dylan. He's my son. I you know I jump in front of a train for him tomorrow, or you know two minutes. But it took a long time to like him because he was very difficult. I mean, if you read the the books, you'll realize he was very difficult. And I mean, every almost every program he ever went to, they would say to us within a month, he's the most difficult kid we've ever dealt with because he's so complex. Mm-hmm. And I actually, when he, I had a counselor back three years ago, I guess it was about, yeah, two years ago, a little over two years ago. A uh, counselor was working with Dylan said to me, I've had between probably seven and 8,000 clients in my career. I've never worked with somebody as complex as Dylan. And I, wow. I said, really? And he said, I said, and are you okay with that? And he said, because I thought he was going to say, and I can't do this anymore. And he said, oh no, I love it. He said, he's, it's fascinating. And so, um, I recently, I recently said to my wife back a few months ago, Dylan and I spoke somewhere, I can't even remember where, and we were going different directions. You know, we were getting on a plane, he was going back to LA and I'm coming back to Maine. And I texted my wife and I said, I'm so happy and I'm sad. I said, I'm so it's so nice to be sad that Dylan is going away because for so many years, I was happy if the kid went in the other room, much less another state. Wow. It was a relief just to see him leave the room. And so I could take a breath and to now be at the point where when we go our different directions, you know, if we, you know, I mean, we almost always have different flights because we're going opposite directions just about every time I'm sad when I see him walk away to another gate and uh, it's a really nice sadness and you know what you said about your dad is very sweet and I actually I said it to my daughter this weekend my daughter is a college softball player and she's a pitcher and she had a rough night on Friday and I was telling my younger daughter who had come down to Texas to see her play, 
that, you know, that my, I, my heart was breaking because she was struggling, you know, out there on the, in the, in the, in the game. And I said, someday you'll understand you trust me someday when you have a kid, you'll understand. But right now you don't, you just, there's no way for somebody without kids to understand what it's like. Somebody said one time that having a kid is like having a piece of your heart walking around on the earth in somebody else's body. That's pretty much what it's like. Yeah, my dad always equates it to uh, you participate in all their successes and all their failures all the time. Yep. Yep. And it's hard enough participating in your own successes and failures as a human being. I can't imagine the amount of... uh, heaviness that may come down on an individual. But I think that's so cool what you said about it, it used to make you happy when he went to the other room because it gave you some peace. And now it you have an actual emotion attached to you guys going your separate ways. Uh, that's incredibly powerful. And I do think that that story needs to be shared. And I'm glad you wrote this book. And I'm glad Dylan wrote his book because as men – you know, we are overall overwhelmingly living in a society where it's more around just suck it up and get over it. Well, it's really freaking hard to suck it up and get over it when your child is suffering from a disability. It's not really a suck it up and get over it type of moment. No. Uh, or any circumstance. Um, so I, I think the power there and the words that you wrote and, and the thing that I think is important is it's not really a topic that's fleeting. If you had written a, a book about, you know, uh, Donald Trump's first term as president, that's irrelevant in four years. But this topic will probably stand the test of time. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah. I mean, sadly, there's, I think it's like six there's like six new autism diagnoses in the country every hour. So theoretically, I have six new potential book sales every hour. But, um, you know, what's, what's really been the most rewarding thing about this whole experience is sharing our story and hearing the impact that it's had on people, which I never expected i it is book if i never sold another book if i don't sell another book and never speak again i i would be perfectly content because it's already far exceeded my expectations um you know it's the the emails and the i mean you've read i got 196 reviews right now 197 reviews and they're all four and five star dylan's dylan already has 15 of her bad choices make good stories. He already has 15 reviews for uh, 14 of them are five star and one of them is four star. And he's already won two awards. His books already won two awards. He won, just won the gold medal from the mom's choice awards, which is a pretty prestigious organization. So it's, uh, you know, it's, you know, it's interesting that you, you talked about men and suck it up and and uh because one of the things that dylan writes about in his book is he writes about his feelings of suicide and he 
when he speaks, when he does his presentation, which is amazing, he talks about how he learned very young. He started talking about killing himself when he was 10. And, but when he was about 12, he realized that there's tremendous power in the word suicide or kill yourself. Mm. He said, if you're, if you're a guy and you say you're depressed or you're sad or you're devastated or heartbroken, people say, oh, you know, hang in there. Tomorrow will be a better day. You know, sun will come up tomorrow. You know, suck it up. But the minute you use the word suicide or kill yourself, boom, everybody jumps to your knee, jumps to your, you know, to help you. And it, and so Dylan said, I never really considered killing myself. I, you know, I always knew that that would be a very selfish thing to do to my family that loves me so much. But I also knew that rhetorically, it was one powerful word. It was the most powerful word I could use to get the help that I needed. Wow. That, I've never thought about that. And yeah, you just blew my mind there. Wow. And in my book, in Chasing the Rabbit, I write about, I tell a story about how when Dylan was living at home and he was a total train wreck, he was under house arrest because he'd been arrested a couple of times. And so he couldn't go out. He had a curfew and never anything violent. And he's never committed a felony. Well, he's never been, he's never been convicted of a felony. Let's put it that way. Um, and he's got a nice collection of misdemeanors. Um, but he had put on a hundred pounds. He was sleeping like 18 hours a day. He was like a lion. He, he had, and he felt he slept because he had no reason to get up. He had no purpose in life. And one day he went into the dentist's office with my wife for just a routine dentist appointment. And Amy went into the dentist's office first. While she was in getting her teeth cleaned, Dylan reaches into her coat pocket, pulls out her phone, gets on her Facebook page, and wrote, Dylan killed himself today. We probably should have seen it coming. Your prayers are appreciated. And hit wow. and hit post. Now, Amy's in the dentist chair. So she has no idea that this has happened. I actually, at the time, I, so I own a corrugated box plant, which I think you mentioned at the beginning. And I was at a box conference in Atlanta, which is as exciting as it sounds. And I had no cell signal. So for about 20 to 25 minutes, neither Amy nor I knew that this post had gone on Facebook. At the time, Amy was a state rep. Uh, she later became a senator. She had, I don't know, maybe like 2,000 Facebook friends because she basically had to friend everybody in town. So everybody was Amy's Facebook friend. The governor had a press release ready to go. People in my office were crying because they've all known Dylan since he was born. It was not good. It went viral pretty fast um, because we know a lot of people. I come up the escalator about 20 minutes later, 
and my phone is lighting up like a Christmas tree. I'm like, what on earth is going on? Well, I open up Facebook and, you know, I see all these text messages. So sorry about Dylan. Our prayers are with you. Our thoughts and prayers. I'm like, what the heck? So I open up Facebook and I had like 94 notifications and, uh, I see the post, Dylan killed himself. And I was pretty confident, pretty confident that my wife was not going to tell me that my son killed himself via Facebook. Yeah. So I knew Probably it not. was Dylan. And I'm like, friggin' Dylan. So I immediately got on Facebook and started, I grabbed a chair in the corner of this conference center and I started texting everybody. Dylan didn't kill himself. He wrote that. You know, he's he's just trying to be provocative and mission accomplished. But what once all the dust settled, Amy and I realized that that was a desperate cry for help. And we didn't realize that he, and he said, no, no, it wasn't, no, it wasn't. Well, later, now that he's written Bad Choices Make Good Stories, he's admitted that yeah, I used suicide rhetorically to get what I needed because saying I was depressed wasn't getting the job done. And sure enough, when he said he when he posted that, we saw it as a desperate cry for help and we s- sent him out to Utah to a program called At the Crossroads um in St. George, Utah that in my opinion literally saved his life. Dylan was headed to either jail or dead, and they they helped him see some value in his life and turn his life around. He lost eighty pounds in eight months. Wow! And um, stopped smoking. Um, just really started taking responsibility for his own life, and uh, it was an amazing metaf- metamorphosis. Um, wasn't the end of his problems. He ended up getting in some more trouble a little later in life when he, even after my book came out, he, he, uh, got arrested for possession of meth. And that's actually Dylan's book leads up to his drug arrest and his going to rehab and then, uh, getting out of rehab and moving to Los Angeles where he has been drug-free now for two years, which we're very proud of, um, which he is interestingly not proud of because he says that the only reason he's probably been drug-free for two years is because I test him every week. And had I not been testing him, he probably would have gone back and done it again. Um, So he said... When people congratulate him, he says, don't congratulate me. It's really nothing that impressive. He said, I I get drug tested. That's why I don't do drugs. Um, Because it's really, really hard to get off these drugs. It's brutal. Uh, Wow. Dylan actually said to me last summer, we were uh, were at a speaking engagement in Denver, and we're having dinner. And out of the blue, Dylan says, I want to do meth every single day. And I said, really? And he said, yeah. He said, don't get me wrong. He said, I don't want to do it, but I want to do it. And he said, I wish I could do it. Um, And he said that it's like having a 
your best friend in the world live a block away and not only can you not talk to them and hang out with them you can't even say hello to them because he can't even try like he he can't even do a little meth you know what i mean yeah he he has to be 100% clean or else he'll go right back to it and so it's like having a best friend around the corner that you can't even say hello to for the rest of your life and that's that's really hard to do Dylan is really amazing at analogies. He can take how he feels about something or how he sees the world and put it into an analogy that makes sense for the rest of us. Yeah. And it's, it's brilliant really. And I mean, he's always coming up with new ones last week, last week or the week before he, he spoke, um, and he came up with a brand new one. He was he was talking about suicide and how he he said, I don't really I, I would not kill myself because I would never do that to my family. But here's how I feel. I feel like my life is like I'm at a party. Because keep in mind, I didn't come into this life on purpose. Like, it wasn't my choice. It was non-consensual. My parents made a decision to bring me into this world. I didn't do it on my... I didn't choose to come here. So here I am. It's like I got dragged into a party. I don't like the people there. I don't like the music. It's too loud. It's too chaotic. And I say, I want to leave. And someone goes over and locks the door and says, no, you can't leave. And he said, but I don't like this house party. I don't want to be here. And they say, well, you can't leave until it's your time. When it's your time, you can go. That's how I feel about life. Interesting. And that's a very, very powerful image. And yeah, it really contextualizes his emotions. Yeah. And. Wow. Derek, we're running up on time here. No problem. I know. I I could go on all no, day about Dylan. So you should have no on the show. I, I was actually thinking that, that while you were talking. I was like, I wonder if Dylan could do an interview. Oh yeah, he, uh, he did he had two yesterday. He's he's king of the podcast right now. Yeah, I, I love it. It's super powerful. It's probably one of the heavier episodes we've done. I mean, we've done some heavy episodes, but man oh man, you uh you're really vying for the top spot there. Uh <laughs> I, I, I do want to end that podcast the way I always end it, and I, I told you I'd be asking this question, but if you could go back to 18-year-old Derek, knowing all that you know and knowing all that you know about yourself, what's one piece of advice you would give him? Uh, I would probably say don't beat yourself up. You're doing the best you can. And if I could go back to 18-year-old Derek – Knowing that he was going to have a baby in two years, I would probably tell him to wait a few years till he's a little more ready to handle it. Um, but we decided to have kids young, and my wife and I were were married young and decided to have kids young, and hopefully, we'll God willing, we'll be able to enjoy it on the other end and have be young enough to enjoy our grandkids and everything else. But um, yeah. 
yeah, I'd probably tell, I'd probably say to 18 year old Derek, look, you're going to have some really, really tough times up ahead. Don't beat yourself up about the tough times and really enjoy the good times because you're going to blink and they're going to be gone. Yeah. Because I, I have three adult kids now and God, it's, it, you know, it's it's such a cliche. I hate saying it, but it goes by so fast. If you're listening and you have young kids and it's stressful and exhausting and everything, I, I get that. I've been there. I've had four, four young kids, but you're going to blink and they're going to be going off to college. and You're going to be going, what the heck? Where did that time go? I thought I had a, seems like two weeks ago I was at a little league game. And, uh, so, and you never know what life's going to bring you. I mean, I've had, I've had several friends in the last couple of years pass away in their fifties. So, you know, my, Somebody, I just got back from Houston a couple of days ago. I'm headed off to Savannah with Dylan tomorrow. And then I'm going to Kansas and Oklahoma and Missouri and Memphis to either speak with Dylan or to see my daughter play softball. And I'm not missing any of it because life is short and I'm going to enjoy every bit of it that I can. I love it. I, uh, Folks, go to chasingtherabbit.org. Seriously. Uh, check out the book. Check out Dylan's book. Again, Derek's book is called Chasing the Rabbit, A Dad's Life Raising a Son on the Spectrum. And uh, Dylan's book is called Bad Choices Make Good Stories, My Life with Autism. Um, Derek, you also do a, a radio show that can be heard on iTunes and Stitcher, DerekVolksShow.com. Check that out if you'd like. And uh, thanks for coming on and thanks for sharing your story. I don't really understand how anybody could listen to this and not learn something from it. So I think mission accomplished there. Thank you. Uh, Thank you for, you know, sharing some very deep and intimate aspects of your life. And I look forward to seeing what the feedback is and maybe we can do a part two or maybe we can interview Dylan or we'll facilitate that off air. But uh, again, thanks for coming on and for everybody listening as always millennial manhood CIP at gmail.com. If you've got, questions you got people you you want us to interview if you've got constructive criticism the key word here is constructive don't just complain you got to offer a solution uh, millennial manhood cip at gmail.com and as always we'll uh, talk to you guys soon <laughs>